in the spirit of loving kindness. And the practice that will, the method that will follow this afternoon will be actually the closest to that which is taught by the Buddha himself, in, as described in the Pali Canon. If you want to know where, it's in the Metta Sutta, the Discourse on Loving Kindness. It's very short. It's like one long paragraph. And in fact, I think I will, I will do this. I will um, take it off my computer, send it to Alex, so that he can, he can put it maybe on the main computer or what have you. It's just a very, very beautiful, short, it's basically a prayer, but you're not praying to someone. It's a prayer, just a prayer of loving kindness, an aspiration for all beings. And the way the Buddha himself teaches this is just more like a field, like a field of loving kindness, where you, again, you start right in the center, like a sonic boom of loving kindness. You start in the center, which will, of course, will venture into this very shortly, but you start in the center with loving kindness for yourself, and then without bringing in, in, in terms of your own personal history, loved ones, friends, and so forth, you rather say, where are you right now? Well, we're here right now. And so then, you, as you start in the center, then you expand the field of your awareness, which in this case is a field of loving-kindness, an aspiration, a yearning that each one of us may find happiness and its causes. So we extend this in front of you, to back, to the left and the right, to all the cardinal and intermediate directions above and below. And so it's really like a three-dimensional volume, a sphere of loving-kindness that extends out and out and out, and the ideal is just like a, a ripple of benevolence, or jamba, jamba. A ripple, a, a field, a wave of benevolence just going in all directions. Just it, It's based upon a, a simple realization. It's actually, it is just that. It is a realistic stance. And that is of all sentient beings fundamentally like ourselves are wishing to be free of suffering and to find happiness. And recognizing the profound interdependence of our own existence here, our lives, our own pursuit of happiness. And of course, it's just realistic to aspire for, that for all of those who are interrelated with us, that they too may satisfy, may realize their own aspirations. So it's like a three-dimensional field, a volume, a, a sphere of loving-kindness that extends out in all directions. And in so doing, just imagine breaking down all barriers from those I like, those I'm indifferent to, those people I don't like, and so forth. Just, just having that all melt away. So the field just goes out in all directions. And we will conjoin this with the breath. Now a lot of you have background in Tibetan Buddhism, so you know that we are slowly piecing together the, uh, the very rich and quite ancient practice of Donglen. So as you're breathing out, breathing out loving kindness, as you're breathing in, arousing aspiration of compassion. Imagine drawing in and dissolving the suffering, the causes of suffering of, of others. But we'll take this step by step, step by step. So today, we'll just practice on Tong. And Tong means to send. And so we're sending out these aspirations in all directions, aspiration of loving kindness. Okay. I think that's it. So, we find a comfortable position overall, again, for these four measurables. It's preferable to be sitting upright. But if you're uncomfortable, may as well go supine. Either way,
heartily encourage you at the beginning of each session, both when we, when we gather here, as well as when you're conducting your own private sessions, to begin each session in the spirit of loving kindness, a heartfelt aspiration to realize more and more deeply genuine happiness and to cultivate the causes of such well-being. And in that spirit, let your awareness gently and gladly descend into the body, right down to the ground. And rise up and fill the whole space of your body as you're mindfully present the tactile sensations arising throughout this field, right up to the top of the head. Settle your body in its natural state, imbued with the three qualities of relaxation, stillness, and vigilance. Cultivation of loving-kindness is one of the most noble endeavors a human being can embrace. So it's suitable to see to prepare the mind as a suitable vessel for such meditation. With that in mind, settle your speech, especially your inner speech, the inner conversation, in its natural state of effortless silence, in order to do so, settle your respiration in its natural rhythm. Relaxing deeply with every out-breath, relaxing the body, releasing the breath, and releasing any involuntary thoughts that may arise. your mind at ease by releasing all mundane concerns for the duration of this session. As pressing as they may be, they don't either need our attention right now. Set your mind at ease in stillness in the present moment. 
let your awareness clearly illuminate sensations of the in and out breath throughout this whole field of the body as you settle your mind in its natural state relax, still and vivid Now let's move from the realm of actuality, the actual sensations of the in and out breath, the awareness of the present moment, and venture into the realm of possibility. As you envision your own flourish, what would make you truly happy? View your life with the greatest meaning, the greatest sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. Vision your own genuine Each out breath. Breathe life into this vision. Arouse the aspiration that you may indeed realize such happiness and the causes of such happiness. And breathe life into this vision. each out-breath let your imagination play imagining 
you are actually experiencing such well-being here and now. Imagine what it would be like for your heart's desire to be realized. begin to expand this field. This field of loving kindness that right now embraces yourself and quite rightly. It is completely authentic in accordance with the Buddhist teachings. To arouse such yearning for oneself. As Shantideva writes, if you do not even imagine the benefits of Bodhicitta for yourself, how would you ever wish this for anyone else? Begin with yourself, but now let's expand. To the people here and now in our immediate proximity. Depending on where you're placed in this room, embrace in this field of loving kindness the person in front of you. To your left, and your right, and behind you. the awareness that each of us here fundamentally came with the same aspiration to find greater happiness, a deeper and richer sense of well-being, to fulfill our heart's desire. So with each out-breath, Breathe out this aspiration. May each of you, like myself, find the happiness you seek, and may you cultivate the causes of genuine happiness. In short, may each of you be well and happy.
each out-breath, let your imagination play. Imagine each one around you finding the joy, the fulfillment, and satisfaction that they seek. Imagine them realizing their heart's desire. never a case of our superimposing our wishes for other people, but rather aligning our own aspirations with their deepest aspirations. They may be truly well and happy. further expand this sphere loving kindness to embrace every person in this room each one as real as each one each one as worthy to find happiness as each of us here
with each outbreath and largely becoming so. Venture into this realm of possibility and imagine it, transforming it into the realm of actuality. the old saying goes, where there is a will, there is a way. Further expand the sphere of loving kindness to embrace everyone here in the mind center. All the staff who are working so hard and so graciously on our behalf. Clean our rooms, maintain the facility, cook for us, clean up after us, doing everything they can to help us in our own spiritual practice that we may find happiness. I was embracing each one they too may find the realization of their own heart's desire. Each out breath, breathe out this breath of loving kindness.
continue to expand the field. If this mind center is one of three institutions here, all of them closely network with each other, we are of course anticipating a wonderful synergy arising over time, where each of these centers enriches the other. So many people working together with a shared vision, wanting to bring something good to the world, good for the body, for physical health, good for the mind, for education, good for the spirit. More and more people can find genuine happiness, expand the field of loving kindness. To everyone here in this academy, humans and non-humans alike, where we share the land with many other sentient beings, each one wishing to be free of pain, to find pleasure. undoubtedly seeing people being coming in by trucks to work here, others going home. The boundaries between the PIA and the surrounding countryside villages is only artificial and conceptual. Continue to expand now in all directions out over the countryside. To all the cardinal directions, the intermediate directions above and below. With this one aspiration, may we all find genuine happiness and the causes of such well-being. all of appearances on objects of the mind and aspirations. Let your awareness withdraw into its own luminous, cognizant nature and rest in the simple awareness of awareness.
So as we bring the teachings from the Pali Canon, from the Theravada tradition together, with some of the teachings of Mahayana, it's quite, quite important that we have clear understanding to see how these can very harmoniously mesh or come together, that we're not bringing in two very different systems that then clash, we have a head-on collision. And so one way to misunderstand the nature of this practice would be to conflate, to mix up the, this authentic motivation or aspiration of well-being, of loving-kindness for ourselves, which is completely in accordance with the Buddhist teachings, in contrast to, or mixing this up with something that's utterly different, and that is what is sometimes called self-cherishing. It sounds, actually, the words in English sound a lot like loving yourself, so that could be confusing. So that's why I don't use that translation, even though it's literally correct. It's misleading. I think in English, a much more accurate translation would be self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. And so this came up 21 years ago in a minor life meeting. I won't tell the whole story behind it. I'll just go right to the essence of it. And this is, and I'm speaking, I'm, I'm channeling what His Holiness responded in this regard. So this is not just my opinion. I have much greater authority than me. Uh, but it's also simply true for the Buddha Dharma. And that is, first of all, this cultivation of loving kindness for oneself, or in Tibetan, Jamba. no problem. Absolutely no problem. And then, loving kindness for your own family. Very appropriate. If you have fellow monks, Jamba for your, for your monks in your monastery. Absolutely appropriate. Yes? And outwards to all sentient beings. All of it's good. All of it's good. But then we, he- then we hear what is that which is diametrically opposed to, antagonistic to, the whole Bodhisattva way of life. What undermines kind of public enemy number one for Bodhisattva way of life. In Tibetan it's called Ran Jinsin. Ran Jinsin. And this is what I translate as self-centeredness. Okay, now this came up, as I, as I said, 21 years ago in one of the meetings in Dharamsala, a mind and life meeting. And the question was, is this love for oneself, is, is, this, is, this, is this something like self-centeredness? And the answer, very short answer, is no, not at all. So what's the difference? What is exactly meant by this self-centeredness, which is so incompatible with the whole Bodhisattva way of life, the whole aspiration for enlightenment? And it's a very clear distinction. Self-centeredness is the sense that my well-being is more important than anybody else's. That is, me and then mine. My family, my loved ones, my friends, my country, people of my skin color, people of my ethnic group, people who, my fellow Buddhists, that our well-being is somehow more important. And so it's this I in the center, the most important, and then those that we are most attached to, (coughs) secondary importance, less attached to, less attached to, don't care about, don't like. So this whole segmentation of all sentient beings, all around self-centered attachment, that my well-being is the most important, and then everybody else gets in row, gets in line after that, and then out to the people I really don't like, or maybe have injured me and so forth, and they really shouldn't have any loving kindness at all. They should suffer. So that's the, the, the bare, unalloyed, pure strain of self-centeredness. And of course, that is completely incompatible with the Buddha Dharma, all schools of Buddha Dharma. All schools of Buddha Dharma, really, but most explicitly the Mahayana. So, but it should be quite clear then that simply arousing a very gentle, embracing, loving kindness and affection for oneself, 
extending this in all directions. This in no way suggests that my well-being is somehow more important than anybody else. Clearly not. And this is where the equanimity comes in, the even-mindedness. So just to give a big picture, just briefly, and then we'll go to a question, and then open this up for open discussion. But there is something of a sequence, and, and it's not too early to bring this to everybody's attention. There's something of a very meaningful sequence to these four measures. Starting, first of all, it's so easy at any time, 2,500 years ago during the time of the Buddha, or nowadays, it's so easy to get bogged down into fixating just on the world of actuality, which means having no imagination at all. You don't have to have any imagination just to watch what's happening. You just watch. And you see, wow, the world really sucks. I mean, there's so much suffering, so much evil, so much mental affliction, stupidity, greed, hatred. There's also virtue, but overall, it seems like there's a lot more mental afflictions dominating people's minds than virtue. So that's just being actual. And then when one looks at one's own life and seeing how much have we experienced thus far, to what extent have we experienced something truly fulfilling, and so forth. And it's easy to put a cap on it and say, well, I'm only human, I'm just an animal. I'm just driven by my instincts. All my emotions are just genetically hardwired, so what do I expect? I'm just an animal, I'm going to die. And so it's easy to just have that kind of very limited notion, focusing on some segment of actuality, it's true, but then have no imagination beyond that. So the cultivation of loving-kindness is an antidote for over-realism. <laughs> over-realism in the sense of just focusing on the realm of actuality and not attending to the realm of possibility. And as I mentioned before, both the realm of actuality and the realm of possibility are in the realm of reality. Because otherwise nothing would ever come into existence that's not already existing. Because there's only a possibility. Right? So to be truly realistic, majestically and broadly realistic, we must embrace and attend to, make real, by attending to the realm of the possible. One might have, for example, a very, oh, an edgy relationship, edgy with conflict, irritation, anger with some other person. It could happen, even among spouses. Sometimes a lot of irritation coming up between spouses. could happen. Parent and child, friends, it can happen. If one only looks at the reactuality, we say, oh, well, this is a really an irritating relationship, and then say, well, maybe I should find another one, because this isn't working very well. Or one can put on some imagination and say, well, it is irritating on occasion, but then what's the possibilities here? How might I change? What constructive uh, suggestions might I make to the other person? And then recognizing actuality, then move into a possibility that could make that irritating quality vanish into thin air because we bring greater understanding, greater warmth and kindness to it. So what was only a possibility becomes an actuality. That which was an actuality has now just slipped into the past. So we start with loving kindness because it moves us out of ruts. It moves us out of a very limited fixation on the actual forgetting the possible. It's a very good place to start. So I congratulate the whole Vipassana tradition that often teaches just one of the four measurables. Good choice. If you're going to choose only one, that's a very good one, good one to choose. Begin with loving kindness. And it also feels good. It's also a nice practice to do. It brings about a kind of happy feeling. It's not bad. right? But as we venture into that, and we do the practice like we just did, then the practice comes to an end, and we open our eyes. We look around to the world of actuality, and once again, reality comes flooding in, but this time it may be the, the world of actuality. And seeing as much as we wish 
we may aspire for every sentient being to find genuine happiness, to really cultivate the causes that would give rise to a greater and greater sense of well-being, as much as we may aspire for them. Often it's not happening. People are just fixating on money, wealth, sensual gratification, and so forth and so on. And then so often, just perpetuating their own suffering. And there are other people suffering as well. And so when we attend to that, it naturally brings some sadness. Especially, in my experience, especially when we see their suffering that just doesn't need to happen. When a tsunami strikes, it's kind of like, there's going to be suffering there. Nobody's choosing it. It's nobody's fault. But there's going to be suffering. It's nobody's fault. And so we just accept that. What, what else do we do? There's suffering, and then we see what we can do to alleviate it. But there's no one to blame, right? But when we see human beings, out of their own delusion, out of our own delusion, out of our own anger, out of greed, then perpetuating suffering, making suffering where it wasn't there in the first place, as if the suffering from natural calamities, from illness, from sickness, and so forth, as if that's not enough. We somehow then add on suffering that never needed to happen in the first place. But it comes because of our own mental afflictions manifesting in the world. When we see that happen, it brings us sadness. Because you see, it's not necessary. Some suffering, in a way, relatively speaking, is necessary. If you get really sick, it's painful. A tsunami strikes, it's painful. No question. But some suffering is not necessary. The suffering that comes from human greed, stupidity, anger, that's not necessary. And so then there arises this kind of sadness, first of all, but then we think, hey, not just the realm of actuality, there's a realm of possibility. In my own life, when I act out of greed, hostility, and so forth, maybe I could do that less, and, less, and create less friction, less unhappiness in the world. So maybe I can start with myself. You know, when I'm contributing to other people's suffering, to my own suffering, maybe I don't need to do it as much. You know? So arousing compassion for oneself arousing compassion, then starting to move into the realm of possibility again. Maybe we could suffer less. Maybe we could give less effort to sowing the causes of suffering. And wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? So that's where the courage and the vision of compassion comes in. Is once again we attend clearly, with 2020 vision, clearly, to the present actuality. And then imagine, what are the possibilities? How could we suffer less? How could we less contribute to the causes of suffering. So there's compassion. Right? But you can see it kind of moves out of loving kindness and then it balances. It balances. But now as we attend to the actuality, we keep on coming back to it. How much suffering there were, how much unnecessary suffering there is in the world. And it seems like it's rolling on and on and on. And it just seems in some ways it's compounding and compounding. When one really attends to that, and of course attending to it at length, it becomes very real. So it's not just your own suffering becomes real. Really, start the, 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 the suffering of the world. And the, Ger the Germans have the best word for that that I know of. It's Weltschmerz. Weltschmerz. True, yeah? A, a, a sense of pain in the heart. That's not, oh, I, lo I lost some money. Or, oh, I, I, you know, I, I, I. It's something embracing. It's a pain in the heart because of the world. But one can become engulfed by that. One can become overwhelmed by that. Well, when it just falls into despair, it's so much. It seems like, when will they ever learn? You know, it seems like it's too much, too much. And just kind of collapse into kind of a hopelessness and despair. And once again, we're fixating too much on the world of actuality. And we're only getting part of the world of actuality. 
Because when we fall into that, we are ignoring something that's very important, that needs our attention. And that is, how much virtue is there in the world? How much goodwill, how much compassion, loving kindness, tenderness, patience, wisdom, and so on. So sometimes so we can slip off and just see this focusing, fixating on the negative can give rise to despair. So we have to balance out. Now wait a minute. And we start thinking about it in the, in, in the past, in history, in the present world. How many people really have good motivation, sincere, genuine, wishing, aspiration, striving to alleviate the suffering of the world that we're not alone? It's not just the mind center. The mind center doesn't have to do it all on its own. Right? And then we recognize how many radiant pearls of light there are around in the world, in individuals, institutions, sometimes even governments do really good things. Amazing. You know? And so we start taking delight. We start taking delight. And that's where empathetic joy comes in. To balance out where compassion can start to compassion can start to erode into or decline into sheer sadness. Then empathetic joy balances it out. And empathetic joy is attending to actuality. Not just going once more into maybe it could be, maybe it could be. No, it actually is. And attending to that actuality that balances out the actuality of the suffering and the cause of suffering in the world. So there's an evolution there. Loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy. Empathetic joys, we really attend to it. Uh, there's virtues, there's joys, there's successes, and so forth. It can start to give kind of a euphoric sense. Like, oh, oh, lifting you up. And then, if you start getting kind of like you're no longer touching the earth anymore, getting caught up in just kind of rejoicing, rejoicing, then equanimity comes in. It's a little tap on the shoulder. Okay, feet back on the ground. Feet back on the ground. And evenness. And evenness. Right? That we're rejoicing, not in everybody, because not everybody is experiencing joy, not everybody is cultivating the causes of joy right now, but it comes back and balances up and embraces all sentient beings in this evenness. This evenness whether it's people devoting themselves to real evil and mis misery in the world, creating misery in the world, or whether it's people seeking to alleviate misery in the world, the heart is equally open in the spirit of loving kindness and compassion to all. And so then, it's equanimity kind of sobers up, sobers up the empathetic joy to see that, all right, let's get grounded here, evenly balanced, world of actuality, world of potentiality. So, it balances up with that evenness, evenness. And from that platform, for all of you who've studied Mahayana, especially Tibetan Buddhism, then you know when you're cultivating bodhicitta, the actual bodhisattva motivation, what's your first step? Equanimity. Right? Because if you start developing your great loving kindness, great compassion, but only for some people, and leaving others out, then you're on the wrong track from the very beginning. So the very first step is developing that even-heartedness for all sentient beings. So the culmination of the four immeasurables is right where the, the mayana path, the ec explicit cultivation of bodhicitta begins. So it starts with equanimity. And then it can go into great loving kindness, jamba chambu, nyingje chambu, gawa chambu, tanyon chambu. So the four immeasurables, but now great loving kindness, great compassion, great empathetic joy, and equanimity, right onto bodhicitta. So to my mind, that's seamless. This is not two colliding school, bickering and arguing who, which one's right, who's selfish, who's not selfish, but a completely seamless fabric, a path that opens the heart to its fullness. So maybe something like that. I don't know.
So there was an interesting question here. It's anonymous, by happily so. It's a very thoughtful question, and I'm happy to address it, and then we'll open it up to any comments or insights, questions you might have. So here it is. As I understand it, substrate consciousness, or the subtle continuum of mental consciousness, is conditioned, and therefore impermanent. Is it arising and passing from moment to moment? What are its causes and conditions? So, quite a sophisticated question. So let's take it apart. The answer is yes. First of all, yes. But now let's unpack it. Because it's a very it's a nuanced question. Is this subtle continuum, the subtle continuum, mental consciousness, that dimension of consciousness that we access you know, very explicitly, knowingly, when you achieve shamatha, is that condition? The answer is yes. Is it impermanent? The answer is yes, but here we have to be careful. Because in Buddhism, when we say something is impermanent, mitapa, that doesn't necessarily mean that it comes to an end. It do, what it does mean is that it's arising and passing moment to moment to moment. It's arising, passing, rising, passing. But time, for example, time is impermanent. Time doesn't come to an end. It's impermanent. The seasons change, the years change, minutes go by. But there's no end of time in sight. Nothing. Buddha never talked about the end of time. And so time continues on. There's also... There's different types of space. There's the space, the intervening space. Intervening space, the space that appears. That's impermanent. I don't, don't know if anybody re- refers to this space that appears in between as somehow vanishing one day. And likewise, this subtle continuum of consciousness. It's impermanent in the sense that it is arising and passing from moment to moment, but no end in sight. No end in sight. That is, there's just nothing you can do to make it turn into nothing. Now, if we look at that substrate consciousness, from the perspective of Dzogchen. From that perspective, what happens when you become a Buddha? That substrate consciousness, this conditioned consciousness, then dissolves back into its source, which is real. So it doesn't become nothing, but the substrate consciousness, this classic Dzogchen, the substrate consciousness itself is the rupa, is the play, is an effulgence, the trupa, trupa, it's an expression, a display of rigma. Okay? Coarser levels of consciousness. Substrate consciousness, even the coarse mind, is not something other than, radically other than, some different substance than rigma, which is the ground. So it just dissolves back into a ground. Analogously, when you fall asleep, your coarse mind, as you fall into deep sleep, nowhere to be found. Where did it go? Did it become non-existent? If it became non-existent, you could never get it back again. non-existent, you can't find you can't find something that doesn't exist. But you get your mind back again. It always bothered me. I wake up in the morning, oh that mind again. Bummer. That's what I, I thought to left be left you behind. No. You creep up and grab me again. So it didn't dissolve into nothing. It just withdrew into an underlying continuum. Then the cause and conditions come together, you open your eyes, you wake up and whoop, out it pops. Right? It emerges from the ground of becoming the balanga, or the substrate consciousness. So, yes, the substrate consciousness is impermanent, but not in the sense that it will have an absolute termination, turn into nothing, but rather that it arises from moment to moment. What are its causes and conditions? Well, the the substrate consciousness, I don't want to get too philosophical here, um, because we're just, we are really speaking of experience, but just for starters, 
the substrate consciousness, like any other mode of consciousness within this conditioned world, in jikten, in the conditioned world, is arising in the, it's, it's a continuum. So it's arising independent upon its own prior moment. So it's arising in a sequence of pulses. Kichipa. Kichipa. Pulses. Okay? This is true in Theravada Buddhism, all schools of Buddhism. Consciousness within this world is arising in pulses, and the pulses have finite duration. Finite duration. Each one giving rise to the next, the next, next, next. And so each one is said to be a substantial cause, or nyeleng, nyelengikyu, of the subsequent one. Right? So already there's that cause, but then there are other conditions as well, if we speak from a Buddhist perspective, which is the only one I can use here. And then there are karmic influences. There are various influences uh, that, will give, that, that contribute to its emergence from moment to moment. So there are various contributing factors. Karma would be one. One can imagine a lot of other factors. When we consider that, this continuum of consciousness that carries on is also, nominally speaking, and I'll be very careful, nominally speaking, mingzam, nominally speaking, that continuum of consciousness is carrying imprints, or bhakta, with it. Nominally speaking. Now, in what fashion? Because it's very easy at this point to start slipping into a chitta-matra view and then reify it and imagine it's absolutely real and really holding imprints and it's all substantiated. Well, then we miss the view, and we just reify or imbue with inherent existence something that doesn't have that. Consider this analogy. Consider an analogy. We do it all the time. And that is, you send an email. Imagine you've all sent emails by now. And so when you send email, what are you actually sending out from your computer? You're sending out an electromagnetic field, a pulse of energy. And then that goes, and that bounces off of some node, maybe goes up to satellite, bounces down, gets processed by another computer, and you tell your friend, hi, I'm doing fine in Phuket, don't worry. Okay? What did you send out? A pulse of just an energy field, right? But we do say that that wasn't just an energy field, it just wasn't, wasn't just some photons, some anonymous photons, like sprayed out of the sun. The, the, the photons, the electromagnetic fields being emitted from the sun, they're not con- conveying any information, any semantic information. Hello, my name's Sun. I'm in the middle of the solar so of the solar system. I'm in the Milky Way galaxy. It doesn't do that. They're just photons or electromagnetic fields. But there's no semantic information, no meaningful information. But now, when you send out something for your laptop, it's different. Those fields carry semantic information. It's a message, and then somebody else picks it up, right? So we can say, nominally speaking, Ming Zhang. The electromagnetic fields generated and sent out from your laptop are carrying information. But if you could look at that electromagnetic field and look at it objectively and say, okay, good, which photon is carrying high? Which one is carrying I? Which one's carrying M? Doing fine in Phuket. Yeah, they're, they're going to be all empty of that. There's not one photon. You can say, oh, yeah, that's the one that said I. Right? But at the same time, information is being transmitted. I mean, everybody who's sending and receiving emails, we have to know information is going back and forth, and it is being carried by the electromagnetic fields. But if you look in them, you don't find it. Right? So something like that. Nominally speaking, yes, those electromagnetic fields are carrying information, but it's all relative context. And a person who knows, who knows in putting information, a computer that processes that, and somebody over there who receives and knows take away the, the sender and the receiver, there's no information there at all. right? So it is there, but it's all relative, it's contextual, and not inherently existent. So, 
In that way, then, your substrate consciousness is also conditioned by information, memories, karmic imprints, conditioned by that, carries along with it. Okay? So, let's move on then. As I understand what you said on Monday, what is left over, okay, what is left over for an arhat who dies is rigpa. I didn't say that, but you certainly, that, that would be a, a strong inference. What I did say, again, I'm not refuting this, <coughs> what I did say, and I can, I can show you the, the exact source in the Pali Canon, uh, is that when an arhat dies, what's left over, according to the Buddha, is a dimension of consciousness that is unconditioned, not impermanent, not born, not ceasing, and it's of the nature, he says elsewhere, of the nature of immutable bliss. So it's really transcendent, and it's inconceivable. He said it is non-observable, and I think what he, what he means by this is, I think it's a pretty safe interpretation, that dimension of consciousness is totally invisible to the ordinary mind, the conditioned mind. Even the arhat's mind, while the arhat is still operating out of the coarse mind, even then, the arhat is not realizing that dimension. Arhat's realizing nirvana. And nirvana is shunyata, is emptiness. He is realizing ultimate dimension of reality. The arhat is not realizing rigpa. This is invisible as long as the arhat is working out of coarse mind. Anybody's working out of coarse mind. It's invisible to the subtle mind. It's invisible to the substrate consciousness. Rigpa, or this unconditioned mind, is visible only to itself. Everything else is non-manifestive, non-visible, non-manifestive. Those are the Buddhist words, right? But then once, but it knows itself, rang rik. So not just in, as in Chitta, again, Chittamatra philosophy, it knows itself, rang rik. It knows itself, but in inconceivable, absolutely non-dual fashion. So this is not Chittamatra philosophy. This is way beyond that. Okay, and this is Dzogchen. So I'm now speaking Dzogchen. So now, is that dimension of consciousness referred to? in the Pali Canon, is that the same as Rikpa? Well, it never says Rikpa. In the Pali Canon, no references to Dzogchen. No references to that at all. Not, you know, or Buddha nature, not there. But then we can ask ourselves, as intelligent people, all right, there in the Pali Canon, the Buddha referred to the dimension of consciousness left over when the coarse consciousness has dissolved away, that is unconditioned, unborn, unceasing of the nature of immutable bliss, and it was, therefore, it's unborn, it's already there, and it's not somebody else's. That's very clear. And then you can ask, all right, in Dzogchen, there's references to a dimension of consciousness that is unborn, unceasing, unconditioned of the nature of immutable bliss. Do you think there are two? Do you think you have a Dzogchen one and then another one, a Pali one? You know? If you think that, I think you have a very vivid imagination. I would be confused which one I want because I really love the Pali Canon, but I'm utterly devoted to Dzogchen. So I'd have to choose which of these unconditioned consciousness will I take, the Pali one or the Dzogchen one, which gets pretty silly pretty quickly. So I think it's kind of reasonable to think there's probably only one, everybody gets one, and that is you're tapping into singular reality that's being discussed from multiple perspectives. So if, if that's the case, then what is being referred to here in the Buddhist teachings in the Pali Canon is Rigpa. Now, let's look at that. Does this mean that the Arhat now has become a Buddha? Because that, I think, was the next question. Is anyone who realizes Rigpa, does that make you a Buddha? The answer is no. In Dzogchen. So I'll always give my perspective here. Okay? If you've realized Rigpa, are you now Samyak Sambuddha? Yangdaba Zobe Sangye. Are you a completely realized Buddha once you've realized Rigpa? No. No. 
if you've, if you've written on number one, you could go to a great lama like Tushik Tumache in Nepal, and there, there are some others, seems like not a whole lot these days, but there are some, very deep realization. They are fully capable of giving pointing out instructions. As they give you instructions, whether with words, sometimes hand gesture, whatever it may be, and they are, from their own realization of Rigpa, they are catalyzing that realization, some taste, some meeting, some encounter in you as they speak from, speak from or in spontaneously act from that level of realization. So one case of that is often, nowadays, it's often speaking. It has been for a long time. It will be conveyed in words. It's called mind-to-mind transmission, but it's being conveyed by words. But not always. There's a very fam- famous case of Tilopa. When he gave his transmission to Naropa, he gave it by taking his sandal in hand and whacking him in the face with it. Okay, And with that whack, Naropa, who was just perfectly poised, this was Tilopa's genius, is he saw when was that precise moment when his student, and it was a guru-disciple relationship, very close, profound relationship, trusting, faithful, absolutely authentic master, very ripe student, and Tilopa was there, and then he saw right was when was the right time to, to just wake him up, to cause him to break through, texture, to break through. And what was the best means? By, by speaking, by mudra, holding up a lotus, what? Well, in that particular case, it was whacking him with a sample. Okay? And lo and behold, it worked. Because Naropa then had his realization of Rikpa right when he got whacked. So instead of saying, Pah! he went whack. And that worked. Okay? I've wanted to try that, but I haven't had any volunteers. <laughs> Maybe I could just line you all up and see if it works for any of you. But I don't think it's much chance. It can come in different ways. Okay? But when you first gain, when you first gain that introduction, it's called Rikpa Modrupa. When you first identify Rikpa, is this the full realization? Unmediated, non-conceptual, non-dual, full realization of Rikpa. Not likely. Happens on occasion, but not, mostly no. You get a taste. You get a taste. Here's an analogy I like. Sometimes, if, if a child is lost, just go, goes astray in the in the in the forest, or who knows, maybe he's kidnapped. Then we know that the in, in some cases they'll take a piece of the child's clothing, the child's clothing, and put it right up to the nose of a hound dog that has just almost like psychic powers of the nose. Right? They'll put it right next to the dog's nose, and then they'll set out. And the dog is in... Actually, I've, seen, I've read about a case recently. They'll put the dog in the car with his nose out the window and they'll follow the, road, the route where they think the child was taken away. And the dog has his nose out the window and it's picking up a molecule here and a molecule there. It's amazing. It's almost psychic. But it does happen. And then the dog will start... Arr, 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 when, it's, when it's getting it denser and let me out of the car, take a right here. And they, they found children that way. Right? So, but how did it start? He had to get the scent of the child and then pick up those little individual molecules left by a child in a car. I mean, it's amazing, but it, it's just fact, right? This is not, this is not something, some news, some news. But tracing it then to its source, and then, lo and behold, there's a child, hopefully in good health. When the Lama gives you pointing out instructions, it's holding the rag of Rigpa up to your nose and giving you the scent. Are you picking up the molecules of Rigpa? Yes, you are. Have you found the child? No. But if you follow that scent and trace it back to its source, that will take you to the full, unmediated, non-dual realization of Rigpa. 
at which point you become a vidyadhara, Rigpa Zimba, a holder of Rigpa, an accomplished Dzogchen master. But you're still not a Buddha. There are four levels of, of vidyadhara. And you've just achieved the first one. Congratulations. And now, what from that point? You've achieved what is called tekchur, or the breakthrough. And of course, you've broken through to a dimension of awareness that is inconceivable and indescribable. Samgimi kappa, and a deva, beyond the realm of articulation, but not beyond the realm of immediate realization, non-dual, non-conceptual realization. Now, when yogis come out of that realization, the straight realization of rikpa itself, how they often describe it, knowing that they're going to try to use words to describe that which is indescribable, but they'll try anyway to help us along, that dimension of consciousness, when they're simply resting in it, having broken through, textured, broken through substrate consciousness to this infinite ground, the ground awareness, they will often describe it as chadal and jane, divorced from all activity, or jane, inactive, ultimately absolutely inactive, absolute stillness, absolute stillness, transcendent, luminous, immutably blissful, boundless, the vast expanse, but completely devoid of motion. And so that dimension of consciousness, we're getting a big dose of Dzogchen here, little seeds for the future, but that dimension of consciousness is said to be to transcend all conceptual elaboration. Beyond all the extremes of conceptual elaboration. So what are they? The extremes of, is it existent or is it non-existent? Cannot say. Beyond that. Those are conceptual categories. Beyond that. Is it, does it, is it born? Does it cease? Beyond that. Does not register. Is it coming or going? Neither one. Beyond that. Is it one or is it many? Chiktanduma. Is it one? So is there one rikpa? Or are there many rikpas? Do you have a rikpa, a rikpa, a rikpa? Everybody get their own? Like, this is my rikpa. You know? Are there a whole bunch of rikpas out there? Or is it just one? Beyond both. Classic Dzogchen teachings. It's beyond enumeration. It's beyond the division between one and two and anything else. Beyond that, it really is beyond conceptual elaboration. And it's profoundly still, absolutely still. So when you've just gained that realization of Rikpa itself and dwelling in it, it's devoid of activity. But you're not a Buddha. In order to be to move along the, the deepening stages of realization of a Vijitara or Rikpa Zimba, then what is needed here is that you must then, through practice, and in, in Dzogchen tradition, it's explicitly through Tutgen the direct crossing over. There are practices that are actually quite simple. They're not complex. Quite simple for completely manifesting all the potential of Rigpa, which is none other than Dharmakaya. In Dzogchen view, Dzogchen view, Rigpa is nothing other than Dharmakaya, Buddha mind. But you're realizing it in its stillness, in its inactivity. But there are practices then such that the creative potential, the wisdom, the compassion, the powers, and so forth, 
of Buddha mind become fully manifest. Fully manifest. And for that, you move along the successive degrees of realization of the Vidyadhara until finally you achieve Buddhahood. And then you fully manifest those qualities of Rikpa. Now that's just classic Dzogchen. Nothing that I said was controversial. Classic, absolutely mainstream teaching. Now we go out on a little a limb. Now I go into, uh-oh, I could be in danger here. What did the Buddha say? When the Ahat passes away, there is that dimension of consciousness left over, unconditioned, unborn, unceasing, inactive for sure. Immutable bliss. Immutable means not changing, so where's the action, right? And so one interpretation, my interpretation, would be, has the Arhat after death realized Rikpa? Yeah, that's all there is. What else is there to realize? You're realizing Nibbana, or Nirvana, that is the same as emptiness. In the Mahayana view, emptiness and Nirvana are the same, equivalent, as is Dhammata, ultimate reality, same. Dhammadatu, same, same words, different words for the same reality. Dhammadatu, Dhammata, Tathatha, suchness, emptiness, and Nirvana, all referring to the same ultimate dimension of reality. You can realize, again, this is uncontested in Dzogchen, and uncontested in the Gulupa tradition. Can you, in the Gulupa tradition, realize emptiness without realizing the innate mind of clear light? Mark? Absolutely yes. There's only one right answer. Yes, the answer is yes. An arhat realizes emptiness. A person who achieves stream entry has realized emptiness. An Arya Bodhisattva has realized emptiness. Have they realized the innate mind of clear light? Whoa, look out. Right? It's not the same. So the arhat following death, as I just boldly venture into the inexpressible, realizes nirvana, of course. We don't stop realizing nirvana. Realizes the very nature of the arhat's own consciousness, which is this unconditioned consciousness. Yes. If, that's, if that is rikpa, yes. Realizing rikpa, but realizing rikpa only in its inactivity. Not realizing its fullness, its effulgence, the complete quality manifesting the world of compassion, wisdom, and all the powers of a Buddha mind, realizing only its stillness aspect, realizing its cognizant aspect, but not its full display of luminosity. So, realizing reality as it is, but not not realizing the full range of phenomena. That only a Buddha has. So the question goes on, and that will continue this little explanation here. Oh yes, there it is. So, how is this different from Buddhahood? That's how it's different from Buddhahood. Plus, I've heard it said that Arhats, this is now in the Mahayana literature, you'll never find this in the Pali Canon, but this person is correctly heard. I've heard it said that Arhats, after Parnavana, after they've passed away, get a tap on the shoulder from a Buddha. And that's how they get on the Mahayana path and become Buddhists. I found this dissatisfying. I agree. I mean, give me a break. How big is his shoulder? And how far does the Buddha have to reach? Where is that? Uh, come back here. Come back here, you little rascal. You know, come on. We're talking poetry here, right? And so that realm is so inconceivable. So inconceivable that the notion of somebody else, like Buddha Maitreya, coming over to the Arhat Shariputra, 
and say, hey, Shariputra, wake up. I'm going to be the next Buddha. Hang in there. I'll help you achieve Buddha. That, that's not realistic. That can't be realistic. So a tap on the shoulder as sheer poetry. Sheer poetry, yes. But what's it suggesting is a very central theme of Mahayana, very explicit in the Madhyamaka, the perfection of wisdom view, and that is all sentient beings have the capacity for complete awakening, perfect awakening of a Buddha. Baseline. All sentient beings have that capacity. And that there is only one final destination, one terminus. And you won't stop until you're there. And that terminus is to fully realize your own nature. And that means you become Buddha. So if all you've realized is becoming an arhat, which is pretty stupendous, right? but you're not yet a Buddha, then there you are in this inconceivable mode beyond existence and non-existence. But you've not completely unveiled your own capacity. So there must be some stirring within you. This is Mahayana perspective. No, it's not Theravada perspective. It's Mahayana perspective, Vajrayana perspective, Dzogchen perspective. And that is, you've not realized, you've, the full, you've not fully realized the nature of your own Rigpa. You've realized it's in active mode, Chamet, Chadil, but you've not realized it's complete creative display. So there must be some, after some timeless time, because you're out of time, there must be some murmuring, some catalyst from the depths of your own awareness that arouses you. And poetically, you can say, the Buddha's tapping you on his shoulder. Some other Buddha? I don't know about that. How about the Buddha that is the Buddha within? Saying, wake up, wake up, fully wake up. You're kind of going, oh, fully wake up, right? And so you're catalyzed, and then you come back, and you arouse the aspiration to fully wake up, because that's the final and the only final terminus, end of the path is only to become Buddha. And the rest is poetry. What do you see as the source of, so now we move on. Very different question. So there was a little bit of Dzogchen. What do you see as the source of sexual energy? Rigpa. <laughs> Buddha nature. Right? I mean, look at, look at all the, look at all the iconography, iconography, my goodness. Samantabhadra, Samantabhadri. Primordial Buddha. Hanging out by himself, is he a bachelor? Is he a man? Is God a he? Is, is Samantabhadra, you know, is it, it, do you finally wind up a real man? Is that what all you ladies want? You'll finally outgrow your ladiness and become a man? It's not there. It's not there. When you see it in its fullness, it's always Samantabhadra in union with Samantabhadri. Both are there, and they're in primordial union. It's not like they found a girlfriend from there. And so it's suggesting that that union is going right to the, the utmost depths. The utmost depths. And how it manifests here as human beings you know, where the, the sexual energy. We are looking at the outer displays, the outer symbols of that which we most deeply desire. And that's the complete unification within. The complete unification within. Of the wisdom, primordial wisdom and primordial compassion. And they're utterly fused in primordial union and in the great bliss of that union. So I just went right to the the deepest depths. That sexual energy, that sexual desire is coming not just out of survival and procreation, not just because of Darwin, not just because of natural selection and genetics and all that. It all has its place. 
on a very biological level that has its place, it's very intelligible, but, but misses so much. So does Freud miss so much. Everything traces back to the libido. Good insight. But let's keep on going deeper, 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 deeper. And so on the deepest level, that accepts that sexual energy is coming from the same source of your yearning for happiness. Not just to survive, not just to procreate. Many people, like Basa here, have chosen, at least for the time being, not to procreate. To survive, yes. Procreate, no. Very deliberately and consciously. Same for, for the Sister Mary, the Venerable Mary. So desire for procre procreation goes deep. And not that deep. I don't want to procreate. I don't think we need any more of my genes around. You know? And when people do, that's fine. So the, the, the deepest source of the desire to be free of suffering, to find happiness, genuine happiness, and why we are, are so incessantly not quite satisfied is because we won't be satisfied until we're Buddhas. So we could be a player. One could just go from one sexual encounter to another, to another, to another, all out of that yearning, that deepest yearning, which is really for enlightenment, but getting caught up in the surface stuff of just having one more sexual encounter. And it happens, it's very blissful, and then it's over, and it dumps you right where you were the day before. No more satisfied than you were, even though it's the most gorgeous man or woman in the world. The day after, welcome to the day after, it looks just like the day before. Welcome to nowhere. Because there's no directionality to it at all. Whether you've had a thousand sexual encounters or one sexual encounter, what does it leave you in exactly the same place? So, one can have a larger vision, say, that this can be an enormous distraction, give rise to an enormous amount of attachment. And attachment then brings on its heels frustration and anger and so forth, and disappointment and so forth. And of course, sexuality may be a very mean, a meaningful part of a very meaningful relationship. It can be that too. An expression of intimacy, an expression of affection, of caring. It can be all of that too. So, I would suggest that's where it's most deeply coming from. And sometimes it's really very helpful to put it on hold so one can see what one really wants in a spirit of loving kindness. Remember that the antidote for empathetic joy when it goes astray, what happens to empathetic joy when it gets bumped, derailed, goes astray, and it falls into its false facsimile? False facsimile is just fixation on hedonic pleasure, frivolous joy. So when it's authentic, it's immeasurable, empathetic joy. But when it just gets then derailed, like a false facsimile, then it's nothing special. Then just a fixation, an attachment to mundane pleasures. Isn't life grand? I love sex. I love food. I love music. Isn't Phuket great? Aren't the, aren't the beaches wonderful? Oh, I love being here. I love Dharma. Let's go, let's go swimming. <laughs> and so that's all very sweet but when it's completely lost the scent of dharma because you really want, you just want to go swimming and have drink a nice you know a nice alcoholic drink of some sort and so what's the antidote well, this is where it gets interesting is what's the antidote when empathetic joy goes astray or what's just generally the antidote when one just com comes totally intoxicated in one's fixation on hedonic pleasure what's the antidote what gets you out of that? What sobers you up? Heidi, what sobers you up? Remember? <laughs> I put you on the spot, very, very deliberately. Do you remember? Among the four immeasurables, which one rescues empathetic joy when it goes astray? I'm putting you on the spot to 
No. This means you're going to really remember it next time because I put you in spot. Everybody on the podcast is on this. <laughs> so, boy, I'm, I'm giving you such a gift, you'll never forget this. Anybody remember? What rescues empathetic joy when it falls into just fixa- fixation on hedonic pleasure? Nicola. No, two wrongs. Boy, we're going to get this by a process of elimination. <laughs> Loving kindness. It's not an easy one. It's not an easy one to guess. So your guess was good, but it was wrong. Your guess, not bad, but it was wrong. Loving kindness is the right answer. Now, that I find so interesting. That one might think, bring on the heavies, bring in impermanence, death, 18 hell realms, treasure realm, anna realm, six types of suffering, eight types of suffering, three types of suffering. Just beat the crap out of that, you know, longing for hedonic pleasure. Good lamrim. Just beat it to a pulp, you know? I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die any moment. I can see it, then let's have six quick. But loving kindness goes deeper. Loving kindness goes back. You want to be happy? Consider how much happiness that's going to really give you. One more sexual encounter, one more good meal, one more pleasant music. Does it really deliver? A very meaningful relationship, yes, it does. If it's saturated by Dharma, yes, a very meaningful, loving, romantic relationship, a marriage and so forth, yes, that could be very much part of Dharma. Sure, no question. As in friendship. Friendship friendship entails some attachment, but it can also be very much part of the path, where the attachment gradually fades away, and what is really genuine stays. But the beautiful, among the four immeasurables, and now you'll never forget this, among the four immeasurables, the sweetest antidote, and it can be the most effective, when we get really fixated on just hedonic pleasure, is loving kindness, where we're asking, wherein lies my genuine happiness? How can I be truly happy? What are the causes of happiness, of genuine happiness, that transforms, that lingers, that carries on from from day to day to day, lifetime to lifetime? I want to be happy. That's why I'm getting so fixated on hedonic stuff. But I don't want to just have a little spurt and then it's gone and leave me right back where I was with no progress, nothing. A whole life can go by. And you may as well have not even lived. If all you had was a whole bunch of hedonic pleasures, it's equivalent to nothing. It's like a no-life. Spiritually, nothing. Right? Whereas every moment of cultivating genuine happiness has direction to it. And every moment of just fixating on hedonic pleasure has no direction at all. It just drops you off right where you were before you had it. So this is loving kindness speaking. Loving kindness is the antidote for getting fixated on hedonic pleasure. If you really want to be happy, good. Why don't you cultivate the genuine, the real causes of genuine happiness? So it's a, such a sweet reminder. It's like a loving parent coming in and giving very wise and gentle counsel rather than just coming in with a stick. If you, ha- if you want sex one more time, I'm just going to whack you over the head you know, with impermanence or death or something. So that's where, that's where sexual energy comes from. And how best to deal with it in retreat? Don't think about it. <laughs> Keep your eyes down. And you may very well find someone attractive here. There's some attractive people. From one perspective, everyone here is attractive. But sexually, some people are more attractive than others. You may find one who catches your fancy. What I would suggest is eyes down. Don't linger visually on people who just arouse your sexual desires. Because that's not what you came for. If you came for that, go to the beach. 
There are a lot more attractive people there, and they're wearing far fewer clothes. <laughs> so if you came to Phuket to get more sexual, a sexual desire coming up, Phuket town, I think, is a really good place for that. Or Patong, Patong, Patong. No. <laughs> if that's what you want, you chose the wrong village. <laughs> but we came here for drama. That's why you travel a lot. You can even have to travel to Thailand for sexual desire. You can have that at home. Right? So we, we came all this way to cultivate genuine happiness and its causes. So then don't mix this up with Malibu or Batong Village or what have you. This is a different place. People came here, every one of us, for different reasons. So if there's someone who has rousing sexual desire, keep your eyes down. When your mind starts to wander and it goes onto an object of attachment, pull it back. Protect yourself. And then give yourself something you enjoy more like mindfulness of breathing. <laughs> it's so much fun. <laughs> and here you might recall the five jhana factors and the five obscurations. You might want to review that in the Attention Revolution. It must be there. And how they map onto each other. It's a once again, like the four immeasurables, remedying each other when one of them goes astray. One of the four immeasurables will come to its rescue. So loving-kindness rescues empathetic joy when it goes astray. They're the four best friends supporting each other. Likewise, in the cultivation of shamatha, the five jhana factors, the samdhingi yanakna, arise as antidotes for dipangma, the five obscurations. And so, quiz time again. I won't pick on Heidi this time. I've embarrassed her enough for one day, benevolently. But now, among the five obscurations, one of those is sensual craving. Of course, that includes sexual desire. And then there are the five jhana factors. Which one provides a direct antidote among the five jhana factors? Which one provides a direct antidote for sensual craving? Who can remember? Now just a hand can go up. I won't embarrass anybody. Mark, go ahead. What's that? Tranquility. Tranquility? That's not one of the five jhana factors. Where did that come from? Five jhana factors. You have to go through the list. Tranquility is not one of them. Yeah. Bliss. Bliss. No. Nice guess, but wrong. <laughs> Nicola? <laughs> Which of the five jhana factors is a direct antidote for sensual craving? <laughs> that was a hand that went up and then went down. <laughs> yeah. So nobody's remembered this one. It's actually quite interesting to remember. And again, it's an interesting one. Just as loving-kindness is an antidote for hedonic fixation, it's interesting. Not, not intuitively obvious. This one, too, is not intuitively obvious. Single-pointed attention, Single -pointed attention yes. Single-pointed attention, that's the one. That's the one that is a direct antidote for sensual craving. And it's true. It's not just not some doctrine, something written down in ancient time, and everybody says it like parents over centuries because you know they read it in a book someplace. It's not stupid. It's actually true, and that is, and you, and see whether you know, see whether it's true. You don't accept it because I say it. That would be ridiculous. But when you're right there in the flow, you know, when you're right there in the flow, and you get those moments of ten seconds and twenty seconds, and your mind is single pointed, it's converged, it's coalesced, sensei. All thoughts of sensual craving are gone. It's gone. You're just focused on one thing, and that is not sensual craving. And it's not an object of sensual craving. It's gone. For the time being, gone. 
And it's not only because you've displaced it. Right? Not just, it's not that simple. You're not focusing on an object of central craving, therefore you're not experiencing central craving. Well, that's kind of obvious. But it's something more interesting than that. Yet, that is true, but it's more interesting than that. And that is when the mind really becomes converts samadhi, samadhi, totally placed together. In the very nature of that, there's something very satisfying. It's really satisfying. And being satisfied, you don't crave for something you don't have. Satisfying. It may not be blissful. That, that bliss is another jhana factor. That's the pritti, or pitti in Pali. That's the bliss. That counteracts something else. There's the sense of well-being, sukha. That's a jhana factor. Vitarka and vichara, those are two. Coarse investigation, subtle investigation. Those are two jhana factors as well. Those are the five jhana factors. Right? The single-pointedness, when the mind really coalesces like this, that just, the essential craving, craving for other things just vanishes. It dissipates, it's like mist. just burns off like in the sunlight. Because you're coming, you're coming home. You're coming home. You're on, insofar as you're right there in samadhi, you're like on a toboggan run that's going right to your substrate consciousness. That's a nice image. Like a sled going right down to the yikinabashebe, yun tamu, or the substrate consciousness. Right there. And you kind of sense it. When you're really in that samadhi, you say, ah, this is the way. Could this be the way to the substrate consciousness? Yes. It's going right there, and you know when you there. There may be an intuition. There may be some sense, like the like the, the dog with the scent. When you're in that, you may have an in, intuition. This is going to get better. It may not be blissful now, and may not you know like joyful, ecstatic, and all of that. But there's something satisfying there that is pregnant with promise. This is the right track. You go deeper, deeper, deeper there, and your coarse mind is going to dissolve. You're going to wind up at the bottom of the hill in the substrate consciousness, and you find, that's bliss. That's bliss. That's bliss with no catalyst, with no stimulation. Nothing can be taken away. The woman, the man goes away and says, thanks a million, see you tomorrow, or I'll call you. <laughs> I'll call you, it was nice. Right? And then you never hear from him again. Substrate consciousness, there's no I'll call you, you've come home. And you've come home to a dimension of consciousness that by nature is blissful. So nobody can take it away. You didn't get it from somebody. So nobody can take it away. So now if you've tapped into the bliss of your own substrate consciousness, why on earth would you want to go elsewhere for something second rate that's not as good as what you've already found? So this is why yogis who have achieved shamatha, their passions are very much under control. But it's not so much a matter of under control, it's just that they're subdued. If you found bliss, if you found luminosity, if you found profound serenity, then why do you go outside to find serenity? Why go outside for thrills and excitement? Why go outside for happiness? When you've come into that, the actual source of it, which is your own mind, brought to a state of equilibrium. Something like that. And finally, now 20 seconds, you spoke of the cons of walking meditation on Monday. The cons in the sense if you're practicing shamatha, you're doing walking meditation, you can bump into things, you'll fall down. 
uh, it seems very clear that one should not, that one could not achieve shamatha while walking. But in terms of the advantages, can you talk about the pros, the benefits of walking as a support along the path specifically of shamatha? Can you please give instructions? I can now at six o'clock. But the instructions, sure. You can practice very, very slow walking as is done in the modern vipassana tradition, very slowly, very mindfully, quite single-pointedly, being present in the body, the rise and fall of the feet, the touch with the ground. That's fine. But especially when here you are practicing shamatha, in between sessions, to have something of a break, something more spacious, and not always being, oh, coming in, coming in, coming in. So what I'd overall recommend in between sessions, by all means, uh, go for walks, but let your awareness be a bit more expansive. Come out, visually come out. In terms of auditory, come out to the sounds of nature around you. Be present in the tactile sensations in the body, the contact with the earth, but come out into the senses, be very present in the senses, spacious, relaxed, open, attentive. If you see a sentient being, might be a good time to practice one of the four measurables, you know. But let there be a spaciousness in between sessions. And walking meditation out there on the road, walking here, if it's raining, we have all of these wonderful covered ways. So you can do some walking meditation and not have to necessarily carry an umbrella, right? So for shamatha practice, walking can be very helpful, mindful, grounded, present, not cut up in the mental chatter, uh, can be very helpful and very spacious. Okay? It can be helpful for overcoming dullness, because it brings a lightness, a greater, greater spaciousness to your awareness, very helpful in that regard. But also for excitation, when there's so much turbulent energy, bottled up energy, this allows it to diffuse. Come out, look at clouds that are 10 miles away. Look at, look at the hills, you know, a kilometer away, and so forth. Let your awareness come out and all that bottled up agitation, turbulence, fizziness can get diffused. So going out for a nice, spacious, pleasant walk, present, grounded, attentive to nature, attentive to other sentient beings. Very helpful. Very good. Okay? Olasu. Have a mindful and enjoyable dinner. The mindful part is our responsibility. Kun Mu has done the tasty part. He's, he's done his job. See you tomorrow morning.